Hello, the Cherry Blossom is out in London and here by St Paul's Cathedral it's an uplifting sight which is sorely needed this week. A perfect storm of fear triggered by a pandemic and an oil shock have given investors a rude awakening with markets dropping at a scale not seen for over a decade. Today, for an extraordinary Rich Pickings episode, we've brought our Global Chief Investment Officer, Andrew McCaffrey, together with our CIOs for Equities, Roman Boucher, and for Fixed Income, Steve Ellis, to put to them the questions that you are asking. Andrew, I'm going to start with you, if I might, because um, you've been cautious about markets well before this virus hit, and certainly before the Saudi-Russia uh, row tanks the oil price. And I suppose the question is, was this a collapse that was waiting to happen? So I think there was a high level of complacency as we uh, came into the, in terms of uh, what the expectations around earnings, around the growth profile, and really the sort of bar that had been set um, for those expectations. I think what was interesting was the degree to which that complacency almost reached a new level in February as we saw the first signs of challenge to the global economy and yet the markets continue to uh, bowl ahead. So I think that the opportunity for um, some resetting certainly uh, was there anyway. That's um, a nice way of putting it, an opportunity for resetting. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's looking pretty spectacular though. Um, where are the, are the main flows? So I think that the important thing to bear in mind so far has been how much we've seen hedging of um, exposures. And some of that is down to the challenges around liquidity in some of the underlying markets and securities. And so you've seen a lot of flows in synthetics, into um, you know, futures, into over-the-counter over type trading, just to try and um, give some management um, to those exposures over the recent uh, week or two. Now the real challenge as we look ahead is how do we see positions play out as you start to think about do you want to maintain exposures overall um, and therefore have to unwind some of the underlying. At the moment, I think what has been very encouraging is the fact that we've seen actually little panic. So a lot of hedging, big volumes going through at times, but not really the sort of panic um, that one might expect given the price action. And, and not the big um, position changes, as you're saying, Roman, is that something you're, you, you'd agree with? Definitely, despite a new volatility regime, we are not facing a panic movement. So clients are remaining reasonably quiet. This is a very good news, even if, yes, we are facing a new investment regime because now we have to price a recession. How is it different to previous crashes? Because you've got, uh, you're talking about the synthetic side of things, we've got algorithmic trading, there's um, much more indexing than, than there was before. What sort of impact um, are they having? In fact, I mean, why don't I ask you, Steve? Yeah, so I think uh, that, that's, the, that's the key thing here. It is different because, you know, this time we do have more ETS, we do have more algo trading, gamma hedging, for example. So a large part of what we've seen, the moves that we've seen, have been driven by an unwind from the more technical side. And we, you know, we know that the, the liquidity position is very lopsided in markets in that you know, since the financial crisis there's been regulation put in place where the counterparties, the sell side banks effectively, have much lower tolerance in terms of their balance sheet to warehouse risk. And yet there's been huge amounts of money which has gone into, into financial markets through ETFs, through mutual funds and so on. And so there's always a risk when you do get an unwind is that there's no, there's no counterparty there, no one to, to give you a bid to get out of this stuff. And I think there's been a confluence of events which have really triggered something of a, you know, liquidity really has just um, come to a standstill in the last few days. Well, well tell me about that actually, but you know, what, what is the position on liquidity right now? Andrew makes a very good point. That the one thing we've seen so far 
is that there hasn't been any real liquidation from the real money accounts. I mean, there has been some, but it's, it's been mostly through the ETFs, but a lot of the hedging that's taken place is through the synthetics, through credit derivatives. So you've seen ITRUX crossover, CDX high yield, what we call the basis, in other words, the spread between the synthetics and the underlying cash bonds has been widening out. So that's the first port of call, has that been, you know, the liquidity has very much evaporated on the cash bond side. There's very little trading, for example, in high yield stuff. There is some in, in investment grade credit, but more in the high yield has been by appointment only. But it's the synthetics that have seen the biggest move. That's that basis, the spreads have widened out there as people are trying to hedge their underlyings. So how are you and your team managing that, that situation then? Well, I think the first thing is that when you're managing portfolios, you have to make sure that you're running adequate levels of liquidity, meaning cash, cash equivalents, and so on. We also monitor within the funds the relative liquidity position. We, there's many different ways you can measure the liquidity in a fund, but we use things like liquidity cost scores, how long it would take to trade a certain portion of the fund at a, tran- a certain transaction costs, and so on. So every single day we're monitoring this, but the key thing that we're doing is making sure that we have the conviction in the fund, maintaining high levels of uh, liquidity so that is, as and when these markets do stabilise, we, we are in a position where we can take uh, advantage of this dislocation. And, and very briefly, Romain, the picture in equities right now. We should differentiate the short and the long run. The relatively good news is that over the long run, apparently end clients are not panicking and are uh, seeing fundamentals probably remaining in the driving seat. Over the short run, it's slightly more worrying because we are seeing technical factors, as we, are, as we mentioned earlier, taking the lead and uh, driving markets much lower or perhaps much higher tomorrow. Okay, so which areas then, coming back to you, Steve, um, as you look across the, uh, the palette of, um, of instruments you can invest in, which are the ones that are worrying you most in terms of liquidity? Well, it's high yield for sure. The thing that we've seen so far in fixed income credit markets, for example, is that when you're an investor and you're buying into credit, in the investment grade space, you have higher duration, higher interest rate sensitivity. So in fact, what we've seen with treasury yields collapsing, um, your total returns are being bailed out. We have seen some spread widening in investment grade. Um, So spreads are widened out from about 40 basis points before the, the crisis to around about 115. So yeah, you've lost some money from the spread widening, but you've been more than bailed out by the, the move that we've seen in core bond yields moving lower. So that segment of the market's been you know, relatively robust. It's more defensive income. The area that's been in, in trouble has been more on the high yield side where spreads have really blown out. So you know, US high yield spreads are now in excess, well, they were in excess of 500 basis points yesterday. They've tightened in this morning, but there's lesser duration, if you like, there. So you haven't been bailed out. So that segment of the market is seeing negative total returns. And therefore, that's the area which could really trigger a response from clients in that they might want to redeem. They might want to pull money out of that segment. And we we do know that liquidity in that area is very much more constrained. And and how is it playing out amongst the issuers? Because we've got some very strange situations um, at this stage. uh, Central banks were warning about credit risk last summer. how is, it, how is it playing out now? Well, the new issue markets basically come to a sp- something of a standstill at the moment. But you know, the, the big problem, I guess, for financial markets, for let's say credit markets, is um, refinancing risk. You know, with spreads having blown out and, and it's very difficult to refinance now because the issue market has come to a standstill. 
for example, the energy sector is about 12% of the US high yield market. And so that is going to see a huge amount of defaults, I think, with oil prices going towards you know, $30 a barrel. You know, yesterday, JP Morgan came out of the report said, oil prices at $25 a barrel, we're going to see 40 to 50% of US oil producers going bust. And yep. that's going to cause defaults to rise. Absolutely. And Andrew, I mean, that, that, that's perhaps the whole point behind all of this. That's, that's what triggered this in the first place, that, um, the, that the Saudis want to see the end of US shale. So it, it's hard to work out what the real political game is because um, you know, there's a Middle Eastern uh, element from the Russia-Saudi position and the degree to which um, you know, they could be trying to help friends in the region um, at this point. There's also this uh, you know, broader concern around how successful the shale industry has been in the US and uh, how they want to attack that. I think that we're not really going to know for sure for, for some weeks um, yet but the, the consequences are already being felt. And I think the, the important thing that Steve raised is that obviously this is a concentrated profile around energy at the moment. It's whether when we add in the coronavirus and other impacts around the global economy, do we actually see a more normal default cycle develop? And the challenge there is that we have a number of companies which have been running on very tight um, margins in terms of you know, cash flow management. The need for that refinancing is extraordinary through the course of the next two or three years. And much of that is, is in private markets as well, not just in the public markets. So some of this is going to go you know, sort of underneath the surface and is going to appear later. And I think something that we you know, are very closely watching of how we see that refinancing profile of these companies develop. What are the indicators that we should be looking for then for the below the surface problems that you, you say are probably going to start popping up? So I think, again, we've got to be looking at different sectors that are going to have an impact onto that cash flow position, the leveraged loan issuance, how much that market can stay vibrant or not. Um, if I'm honest, that broader uh, lending profiles across um, you know, the US and across uh, the major economies, because that's where you're going to see the signs of whether there's an ability to you know, maintain a level of activity or we start to see that drop off. Now, part of this has moved into you know, private investors, institutional investors picking up a certain amount of the slack. But even there, that um, the challenge uh, is going to be how much are you going to commit, you know, good capital after what could be very challenged, if not bad capital now, you know, in this environment. And I think so, you know, there's a number of um, areas such as looking to um, uh, you know, free cash flow numbers, looking at the, the increase in issuance numbers versus previous uh, debt issuance. So i.e. they're raising to cover income and, and cash flow needs as much as capital. You know, all going to be things that looking at very closely. Um, Roman, what are our team of analysts telling you about the conversations they're having with company management about the, the action that those companies are taking to defend themselves at, um, at these times? The bizarre thing is that people were really were prepared to, to manage scarcity and the crisis, the perfect storm, came from something abundant, oil. So this oil shock is really the perfect transmission mechanism from the coronavirus outbreak to the real economy. Because oil is not only impacting oil as such, is impacting, of course, oil-related names, but it is impacting credit because oil is a significant chunk of the credit market, oil is impacting FX, and oil is also impacting the real economy because it's a significant, and by the way, positive shock for the consumer because it does, of course, uh, bring more uh, purchasing power for, for the consumer also. So could on, just on that, I think it's an important point that also we're seeing a very interesting um, development, even in the very short term, between what's happening in Asia and in China and the ability for, in some ways, for them to be getting sort of post the worst of the, uh, the virus impact. 
um, now getting a positive um, impact from oil as they are those who are import and uh, to give that um, you know, little bit of help at a very difficult time. So, it's are, are we seeing a bifurcation then? Because you've got President Xi was in uh, Wuhan today, big show of confidence. There's a big push to get workers back into factories, back to the right part of the country. At the same time, so a recovery there. At the same time, that things are really only now beginning to hit the West. So I think there is that um, now it's too early to, to be calling all clear on uh, all things Chinese and Asia. But I think that the ability to see these positive um, you know, elements flowing through into the economy just at this time you know, is encouraging for them to be able to maybe generate that recovery and also have the dynamics for it to be that much better. Whereas in the West we're just coming to terms with um, what this may mean. But there are two sides to this. That might be the supply side that's coming back on. Um, but Roman, global supply chains are so integrated nowadays that the demand side is only yet to hit the, the, the bottom um, in developed nations, the, the clients of um, those Chinese companies. So it's, it's not clear cut, is it? It's not clear cut and there is a clear differentiation between the online and offline uh, market. So when it's about online shopping, apparently most recent figures are pretty encouraging, not to say even higher than expected. So this is why we are facing two types of companies. When uh, they are uh, dealing with the consumer offline, uh, it's a problem. When they are dealing with the consumer online, apparently they are sharing with us uh, pretty reassuring messages. Let's move on now to um, what action we might see from policymakers. Andrew, we've got um, weak markets, worsening liquidity, all triggered by a global oil shock. What can policymakers uh, do to, to try and fix this? I mean, will, will they step in when you have that concoction? So I think um, there's a difference between monetary and fiscal policy at this stage that, um, as we saw with the Federal Reserve doing the emergency cut, that the challenge is you know, providing liquidity now isn't necessarily going to help the demand side of the economy. However, I think it's very important, as we saw with the increase in repo uh, yesterday, and also um, the degree to which uh, Bank of Japan has been intervening to buy um, assets, that there is still that liquidity in the system to you know, provide underlying support for, for markets at this stage. For fiscal policy, you know, we saw the announcement from President Trump last night, which has been received well as a, as a focus on to um, really trying to support the shock that comes from some of the impact on the demand side through what could happen on the virus and the linked activity uh, from that. So really it's about a commitment to support the economy in whatever it takes and then to be the sort of specific areas that will help those um, companies and activities that are going to be most badly impacted. But whatever it takes, that's a phrase that we associate with monetary policy. It, it really is shifting now into, into fiscal policy, isn't it? For sure, and we announced it a couple of months ago, that in 2020 it would be mostly fiscal. But of course, we could be positively surprised by the size and the speed of this fiscal stimulus. And on top of that, we were also envisaging a couple of months ago that at some point in the cycle, we could have to consider helicopter money. And now it's for real in a country like Hong Kong, uh, in China. Uh, so we are seeing that, yes, cash handout has been an activated option over the last two weeks. You know, we look at what the Fed can do and other central banks can do. And the Fed have obviously did the emergency cut of 50 basis points last week. And you might think, well, why are they doing that? Why are they cutting interest rates in a time where this is more of a supply side shock from coronavirus, the recession risk from that? The, the main thing that the Fed are uh, trying to focus on here, rightly or wrongly, and I'm you know, probably a, one of the biggest critics of what monetary policy has done in the last decade or so, 
But this is all about financial conditions um, and providing adequate levels of liquidity. So in times of duress, you see financial conditions tighten. So credit spreads widen, equity markets go down and so on. And so the Fed are there, willing and able. They, you know, they've increased their, what, what's called their overnight repos and their term repos, their 14-day repos yesterday. They're making sure they provide lots of liquidity to the, the lubricating the, the system. Um, and also by cutting rates, they're hoping that that's going to try and reduce financial conditions. But I think they're basically running out of ammo here. And, you know, despite they could go to helicopter money and do, you know, go all in and, and do something very unconventional. But you're seeing already the net effect of what's happening by the, the Fed. Investors are voting by their feet and they're, they're basically saying that it's just, it's monetary policy is impotent. But also the, the thing we shouldn't forget here is the dollar is getting really badly beaten up as a result of what the Fed are doing. And that may be a good thing, I think, for uh, in the longer run. Might introduce inflation into the Yeah, uh, I think that's, that's what the world needs, a weaker dollar. I always think that you need a weaker dollar. But the reason why the dollar is weakening so much is that, you know, that other central banks such as the ECB, minus 50 basis point repo rates already, and the market's pricing in another 10 basis points of cuts in the next month. I mean, it's just not going to swing the dial at all. Same with the BOJ. It's a very limited amount to what they can do in terms of interest rates, whereas the Fed can do, and what's priced right now, are four more cuts of 25, another 100 basis points, taking policy rates down to a range of zero to 25 basis points. So the dollar is getting hit as a result. And that, that's not a bad thing, but the Fed have got to be careful what they wish for here, because I think if, as Roman says, central banks do go, go down the route where they do unconventional policy and the Fed goes all in and does something like helicopter money, that would really debase the dollar. I think the dollar would go, would really start to spiral and that's not a good thing for markets. So it's an interesting uh, point because you know, if you started to see that happen, we, we naturally think of a weaker dollar as being a stimulus, you know, the, the yeah. value of dollars in the system. The challenge is that what does it do to yield? Because a lot of the predication of um, uh, you know, the pricing of all long duration assets has been that contained profile of yields. It was an interesting to see the switch now where we've seen this you know, sort of safe haven flows that have occurred as um, uh, you know, people have tried to, to look for an opportunity for uh, where to maintain their capital. Um, and that hasn't supported equities. But I think, again, that you know, we have a much bigger risk fundamentally if we move into an environment where we have higher yields developing, which undermine that lower forever yeah. um, profile. But for now, if there aren't any yields to be had for those who, who need them in, in fixed income, remember, where, where, where are they going to go? Our conviction is that if people are hunting for yield, the only place to, to find a decent yield now more than ever is in the equity world as long as you are investing in, in listed assets, in liquid assets. But of course, to Steve and Andrew's point regarding FX, FX will play a key role too. Because if the US could face just a technical recession, if the US dollar is much weaker than uh, in the past, at that time we know what it means for Europe and Japan. It could be a double whammy and it yeah. could be a more severe recession mm. in Japan and in Europe. This is why pricing a recession as of now could or could not be a us. Yeah, I think that's, and that's the key thing, I think, for Europe especially, is that, think about Italy. Italy's been in a balance sheet recession with debt to GDP at 138%. And, you know, it's really struggling. Uh, they just cannot generate enough nominal GDP growth to erode the value of their debt. Here they are in a situation where they have the coronavirus, so they're going to go into a deep recession, and the euro is appreciating. This could be highly damaging for, for Italy. Okay, we're almost out of time, so I'm going to ask you each very briefly to tell me um, where do you think we're going to be in six months' time? Steve, let me start with you. 
Well, I think we're going to see a lot more um, policy response here, but it's going to be fairly impotent. But I think there has to be a fiscal response here. So I do think there will be a situation where I can see further problems in the short term, more dislocation of markets. Real, inv- real money investors could start to, to put, take some money out. But ultimately, you know, we're in a, for an environment where yields would be extremely low at that point. Um, and uh, you know, there will be a search for yields. So I think high yield you know, will come back at some stage. But right now, it's, it's super precarious. And Roman, with the, um, the policy action that Steve's talking about, whether it's fiscal or monetary, will that be enough to turn things around in six months' time? Do, uh, do you see a, a recovery? It could be enough to turn the tide at least from a market perspective, because valuations now are clearly already pricing a recession and people are still starving for yield. So it should help to preserve a decent level for equity prices. Having said that, we are remaining cautiously optimistic, which means that uh, we are preserving a quality bias. What uh, it does mean, it means that we are avoiding stocks with a significant leverage. Because when you are let cycle uh, from a credit cycle perspective, it's not time to buy leverage names. And Andrew, from your vantage point, um, what do you predict for the, uh, for, the, for the rest of the first half and as we go into the second? So I think it's a good point that Roman has just said around uh, leverage, that now you're really being told that uh, even though we've said for some time that you know, late cycle is going to be a dangerous place, I think it's been highlighted that um, you really do want to be focusing on that quality. Um, the other point, I think, is that until we start to see more evidence of what's playing out in the real economy and the direction of fiscal policy to really address the issues that are um, uh, you know, playing out from that, then I think that you know, markets can recover on the expectation of fiscal policy, but they'll be challenged through the next couple of quarters by um, how much that impacts and how much that um, you know, we start to see real role in uh, data come through uh, the global economy. So a lot of convincing yet to do. You've been listening to Fidelity International's Chief Investment Officer, Andrew McCaffrey, alongside Equities CIO, Romain Borchem, and Fixed Income CIO, Steve Ellis. And they've been talking to me, Richard Edgar. This has been a special edition of Rich Pickings. If you've liked what you've heard, please rate us and subscribe on your podcast app of choice. Thanks for listening. Until next time, goodbye. This podcast is for investment professionals only and should not be relied on by private investors. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is intended only for the person or entities to which it is sent. It must not be reproduced or circulated to any other party without prior permission of fidelity. The value of investments can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. For other important legal notices, please see our website, professionals.fidelity.co.uk forward slash about hyphen fidelity.